Hello and welcome to the Sports Medcast, brought to you in association with the British Journal of Sports Medicine and the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. We are your hosts. My name is Dr. Scott Young, and I am an emergency medicine physician with a fellowship training in primary care sports medicine. I work uh, just a little bit south of Seattle, and I work in an academic environment teaching residents in the emergency department, and I also have the fortune of working in a sports medicine clinic uh, where I also take care of some family medicine residents. And uh, as with me, as always, is Dr. Cole Taylor. What's going on, Cole? Hey, Scott. Uh, good to be here. As Scott introduced my name, but I'm also a primary care sports medicine physician. Uh, my background is family medicine. I live here in middle America outside of St. Louis and also work in an academic environment teaching residents in family medicine and sports medicine. So it's great to be back. Great to be back on another episode of the Sports Medcast. Scott, we've now done three of these. This is episode number four. What what have you learned from the first three episodes of the Sport Med, Sports Medcast? Um, I've learned that uh, the internet connection in rainy Pacific Northwest <laughs> is sketchy most of the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How about yourself? Uh, I learned that I say interesting and phenomenal way too much. Um, yes, indeed. Yes, and, indeed. <laughs> and I need to uh, find I'm also new. Guilty of the same. I need to find new adjectives. I I meant to go into Google and just type in like synonyms for interesting. I didn't do that, so I'm not sure what we're going to get today. Probably a lot more interesting coming up. Yeah, that's phenomenal, Cole. Phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> really interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to it. That's great. Yeah, and I will also bring up that um, in our last episode, we had the chance to talk about hamstring injuries, and then it was it was almost like fate just in the very next day in my clinic. I saw a patient come in with an acute hamstring injury. Uh, based on what we had talked about in the review, I had gotten a more urgent MRI for the potential of uh, surgical intervention, and sure enough, this individual had a, a full a three tendon tear at the origin with no retraction, but three tendon tear. And so I got her shipped off to an orthopedic surgeon within a couple of days and they operated on her within a week. And it was pretty cool. It was very rewarding to go over that information and be able to apply it just within a couple of days of the episode. That's awesome. Uh, I've had a couple of situations similar with things that we've talked about and been able to apply it right away. It made me feel a lot smarter than I probably really am. So it's worked out pretty well for me. So in speaking of feeling smarter than I actually am, believe it or not, the Sports Medcast has finally dipped its toes into the world of social media. Um, <laughs> Good, really, for us. Good for us. <laughs> we, we really don't know what we're doing yet, but in general, we hope to post links to the articles that we discuss, uh, retweet fun tidbits and things along those lines. So to start with, you, you can follow us on Twitter at, at Sports Medcast, and we look forward to making all sorts of mistakes and things that you can laugh at as we develop our skills in social media. So that should be fun. But anyways, moving forward, today we're going to be talking about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And most of our discussion is going to be based off of an article originally published in the British Medical Journal of this year, 2013, by Richard Day and Gary Graham out of Australia. This article is also republished in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and just has some really great tidbits and tips on using non-steroidals appropriately and safely. So, Cole, why don't you start us off and talk a little bit about the effectiveness of nonsteroidals and where we should be using them. Sure. And I guess the most basic question that we should always ask ourselves whenever we're providing any type of treatment or medication is how well does this actually work? And they're able to answer this question for us. Sprains or soft tissue injuries, those are going to be the most common things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. Do NSAIDs work? And the answer is yes. Uh, very small numbers needed to, tr uh, to treat to achieve greater than 50% pain relief, Scott. So they work. That's great. Uh, I mean, definitely pain relief is a big 
portion of what we're trying to do here, but what about swelling and some of those other clinically relevant things? Yeah, Dr. McCormick had talked about it on the recent BJSM podcast that he appeared on, and he talked about the fact that there just isn't a lot of literature to support reduction in inflammation with sprains and things like that in musculoskeletal um, trauma. So like an ankle sprain, do we really know that giving a dose of NSAIDs will take that swelling down and make it better in a couple of days? Uh, no, we don't. We know that pain control is there, and a lot of that uh, research that we point to probably comes more from gout and rheumatoid arthritis studies, but we don't really have the literature there for us in terms of ankle sprains. Um, when, when the next part that we're going to talk about is going to be osteoarthritis of the knee. This is one of those sections that's very important because these patients are, are going to manage their pain chronically. This isn't something that they can just take for five days and be better. And Scott, you, you had a chance to look through this. What was your takeaway with regards to osteoarthritis of the knee? Uh, well, you know, I'm not as quite as smart a guy as you are, and I don't get to, too lost in the numbers, which is maybe not a good thing. But basically, my impression was that they work uh, in OA of the knee, but the, the effect size is relatively small. And I'd be willing to guess that you probably dug a little deeper and found some more evidence to expand on that. I did, and I appreciate the compliment. That was so nice of you. Probably the nicest <laughs> thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I take it back. I take yes. it back. All right. But I did. I, I found a couple of nice reviews. One is from Bandelier. That's an online independent journal from some Oxford scientists where they had combined two of the Cochrane reviews of arthritis in the knee and hip and come up with some information. And they talked about diclofenac having the best evidence and consistently showing response with up to 82% of patients that experienced over 50% of pain relief. So to me, that's a big big deal. and makes a lot of sense. And then they compared things like paracetamol and low-dose ibuprofen, so uh, less than 1,200 milligrams a day, and placebo. And all of those groups came in at around 20 to 40% of patients having at least 50% of pain relief. So some nice additional information there. So then, then kind of, you know, when you're talking about OA of the knee, the last option there is topical NSAIDs. And topical NSAIDs, at least when you look at the literature, suggest that they're uh, just about as good as the oral NSAIDs. So one of the Cochrane reviews said that there was no difference in efficacy. This BJSM or, or uh, British Medical Journal article talked about a number needed to treat a little bit higher of 11. And so uh, we use Voltaren gel or diclofenac gel here uh, in the United States. And then I found a diclofenac solution or PENSED. I've never used that before, but it has even better evidence for it in terms of lower numbers needed to treat. So it's a great option to our patients. It's going to have lower side effect profiles uh, with the oral NSAIDs, but seems to work just as well. That's interesting. So you're saying that topical, at least for OA of the knee, that topical NSAIDs work just as well as oral. There's some evidence to suggest that, and then there's some that suggest that it's at least pretty close. Interesting. So just from a practical standpoint, when you take a patient and you give them some diclofenac gel, how do you, do you tell them to just slather it all over their knee or do they spread it on their medial joint line? Like, what, what, you know, practically, how do you, how do you tell your patients to apply it? I, I just have them put it in the bathtub and then you just soak in it. For, for <laughs> <laughs> that may cause that may cause renal failure. Uh, so no, I do not advise. Of Please, that, but, nobody out there do that. But we no, may you, throw some bad pearls out on this on this podcast, but that's not what we want anybody to follow. If if, if you are uh, bathing yourself in diclofenac gel, you've got other problems besides what what uh, we're talking about here on the podcast. But yeah, you, you'd apply it maybe using a glove so that you're not getting it soaked into your hands per se, but you would just apply it to the area of, of the greatest amount of pain. So try to find an area where the pain is localized and rub it in. You can do it a couple times a day, up to three times a day, I believe, with diclofenac gel. Hmm. That's interesting. So what are some other conditions where they talked about using the gel? Sounds like a pretty effective treatment. 
Yeah, tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis, lateral epicondylosis, whatever you might want to call it, has some great evidence. Uh, the tough part, Scott, is in some of these conditions, if you give people placebo gel, and I know you're a big fan of that in your own practice, but <laughs> 49 out of 100 patients will report significant improvement on placebo gel. So that becomes a very tough thing statistically to defeat, so to speak, with a, a, a medication. But sure enough, topical NSAIDs, 73 out of 100 patients will, will get improvement. So they'll come out and say the scientific number of number needed to treat is four. But really, if you look at it, unless you're giving placebo gel, which I joke, I, I know you're not giving placebo gel, but it, it just putting patients on the 73 out of a hundred are going to get significant improvement. That's, that's pretty, uh, convincing information. Those are, those are great points. And definitely I suspect, uh, at least just from my experience around here and the people that I work with, that the topical insects are probably very underused, especially in those two particular conditions, uh, osteoarthritis of the knee and then lateral epicondylosis. So were there any other problems that the article touched on that might benefit from NSAIDs? Uh, yeah, but before, just you touched on the underutilization. I think sometimes it's underutilized here in the United States because of cost. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, we don't have the, the formularies and the free medications all the time, and, and topical gels have a much higher cost than do the oral NSAIDs. So I think that's a big issue. Oh, but, that's a great, uh, point. great point. An, Another issue is that they just talked about was low back pain. I won't get into that too much. You can read the article if you're really interested in it. The bottom line is it does seem to work. The effect size is fairly small. Interesting. So if you were to take all that information, you obviously did a lot of digging and kind of distill that down. Did you come up with a couple, three points that you think really – great, you know, clinically applicable stuff that you'll take back to work with you? Sure. I think there's a couple takeaway points for me. One is that if you're giving NSAIDs for reducing inflammation in sprains, I'm not sure that there's great evidence to suggest that they actually do that. Maybe they do, but we don't really know. If you're treating OA of the knee, uh, NSAIDs work, but the effect size is fairly small. And then we should really consider uh, topical NSAIDs. They seem to work just as well as oral NSAIDs and reduce a lot of the adverse effects, which we're going to talk about next, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly the NSAIDs have some safety issues, but before we really get into the details there, I just want to quickly touch on some very basic pharmacology of non-steroidals, um, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, depending on what your profession is there on the outside listening to this episode. But basically the non-steroidal drugs block a couple of enzymes, the cyclooxygenase enzymes. There's one and two, and there's two classes of non-steroidals. So there's non-selective, which block both enzymes, and then there's a selective or COX-2 inhibitor, which obviously blocks the cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme. So the, the COX-2 inhibitors are the newer ones, and uh, were designed to have a better safety profile. So we're going to get into that a little bit to see if they really do have a better safety profile and how, um, you know, what situations one should be used over another. So in general, uh, looking at the safety of non-steroidals, the older you get and the higher the dose and the longer you use the drug, the higher your risk is going to be. And I think that's pretty obvious. So we're breaking these down into different categories of risk. We'll start with the GI tract. So when we're looking at injuries to the upper GI tract, associated with non-steroidals, we're basically looking at perforation, which usually result from ulcers, and then upper GI bleeding, again, probably from ulcers. Um, Both selective and non-selective non-steroidals are associated with increased risk, but the COX-2 or selective non-steroidals are better than non-selective in general. Um, Some people advocate throwing a, a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker or some sort of stomach protective medication in when you're using 
these nonsteroidals in a patient that may be at higher risk for bleeding. Uh, is that something that you do, Cole? Is that, do you see that done a lot in your practice around you? Scott, that's a great question, and one of the most important questions that we ask ourselves here is mitigating the risk risk in these patients that are at high risk. And so, for me, if they're high risk for bleeding or moderate to high risk, whatever it might be, usually I'm I'm actually trying to not prescribe NSAIDs in general. But if they require them and they need them, then I think it's something to think about. But keep in mind, these are a lot of these patients are guys that are just going and picking this stuff up over the counter here in the United States. So I can go pick up ibuprofen or leave, and they certainly aren't even thinking about their GI risk. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's certainly, if you go to the chemist or your local pharmacy, you're not going to find those two medications sitting next to each other on the shelf saying, here, take me and me at the same time. So it's interesting that the, the BMJ article talks about how the use of a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker, in addition to a non-steroidal, is somewhat controversial. It has been shown to be cost-effective in the United Kingdom, at least, in you know, preventing some of these um, injuries to the upper gastrointestinal tract. But Looking at a Cochrane review in 2011, there is actually pretty good evidence. A meta-analysis showed that uh, adding either a PPI or a double-dose H2 blocker was protective. So if you took a non-selective non-steroidal drug such as ibuprofen or naproxen and you add a PPI to it, it basically becomes equivalent to a selective non-steroidal or COX-2. So, but the, the Cochrane review's advice was the best option is to take a COX-2, which is already selective and somewhat protective, and then add a PPI to that. So I thought that was pretty good information. Um, the last thing I thought was interesting is, you know, we've talked a lot about topical NSAIDs. It seems like it's sort of becoming a theme of this episode. There are, there's no evidence to show that uh, topical NSAIDs cause more GI events than placebo. Uh, so again, topical NSAIDs seem like a great option for us. Good stuff, Scott. And and as we talk about GI issues, the thing that's been in the news lately that or at least in years past that makes the big headlines is the cardiovascular stuff because nobody wants to have an extra heart attack or worsening heart failure or certainly death. What did we find out with regards to cardiovascular risk with NSAIDs? It's a, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, this is a, it's a tough topic. I think if you're working in the United States, you're quite familiar with the Food and Drug Administration and their quote-unquote black box warning uh, which is a label they place on certain medications or require pharmacies to, uh, uh, excuse me, pharmaceutical companies to place on certain uh, prescription medication and is basically the strongest warning that the FDA requires talking about the risk of developing certain uh, issues associated with medications. And non-steroidals have all been labeled with a black box warning regarding myocardial infarction uh, and coronary death. But what's interesting is that this article talks about naproxen specifically does not have evidence of all the non-steroidal selective or non-selective naproxen specifically um, is not associated with an increased risk of myocardial infarction or coronary death. That was brand new to me. I had not heard that before. And in the United States, naproxen still carries that same black box warning. But again, um, at least according to the literature and the meta-analysis, it does not show an increased risk of MI or coronary death. And in general, the higher the dose, the higher the risk for, uh, you know, some type of myocardial injury or uh, coronary issues. Yeah, I found that part very interesting. For example, if you're taking ibuprofen at lower doses, there doesn't seem to be, at least from the literature, an increased risk. 
And yet, if you're taking it at very high doses, there's a significant increased risk. And then so the, then the bottom line or the average number they get in the end is sort of this moderate risk. I think I calculated the numbers out to be a number needed to harm of about 294. So you'd have to treat 294 patients with ibuprofen regularly uh, to, to cause one MI in a year. And, and so it's like, wow, well, you know, 294, I don't know what to make of that. But the risk is actually much higher if you're using high-dose ibuprofen, like 800 milligrams a couple times a day, as opposed to if you're using 400 or lower, where the risk seems to be almost nothing or, or comparative to placebo. So once again, like you said at the beginning, uh, the dose really does matter here. So Scott, we've covered some of the cardiovascular and GI issues here in greater detail, but now let's do maybe a little bit of more rapid fire with the other complications or problems that can arise from NSAIDs. I'll sure. give you the scenario or the question, and then you give me the answer that was addressed in the article. How's that sound? Yeah, sounds great. Let's hear it. Bring it. Okay, so you just talked about MI. So Scott, what about stroke? That's a great question, and frankly, that's kind of a tough one. Um, the BMJ article talks about the most recent and largest meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials shows that there really is no increased risk with non-steroidals in the development of stroke. However, there is some uh, literature from the past that shows that maybe there is some increased risk. So I'm personally not willing to commit either way on that one. I think you have to use your own judgment and be cautious. All right. Sounds good. How about in patients that are already taking aspirin? That's a great question. And this is actually a really interesting one for me. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this before reading through this article, but the non-selective NSAIDs actually block the antiplatelet effect of aspirin. So if you have somebody who's taking aspirin and you put them on a, a non-selective, non-steroidal, if that aspirin is being taken for just you know cardio protection or whatever, somebody who's at risk for MI, it blocks that effect. So they might as well not even be taking the aspirin at all. I thought that was interesting. So the recommendation is, is to consider using a COX-2 at low dose, of course, as we talked about the potential for increased risk of MI. Um, but a COX-2 selective inhibitor does not inhibit the antiplatelet effect of aspirin. So people on aspirin already use a low-dose COX-2 inhibitor. All right. And let's take the other side of aspirin. So some patients that have asthma have an aspirin sensitivity or an aspirin allergy. What do we know about giving these types of patients NSAIDs? So certainly the non-selective NSAIDs can uh, cause some sensitivity there. There is almost 100% cross-reactivity but that uh, cross-reactivity has not really been shown with the selective COX-2 inhibitors in uh, double-blind challenge tests. Okay, Scott, so moving on to the next subject group, what about those with kidney disease or chronic renal insufficiency? Yeah, this is a tough one, too, and the article actually talks about a lot of stuff that I won't get too deep in. But the bottom line is both selective and non-selective non-steroidals can worsen renal function especially in patients that are taking angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors and angiotensin inhibitors. Uh, those can, paired with a non-steroidal, can increase serum potassium and worsen kidney function, so probably not a good idea. But I definitely encourage the folks out there to take a look at the article um, if you want more information on that specific situation. Yeah, that's a, a pretty big topic, I think, and tough to talk about here in a short podcast. Sure. What, about, what about pregnancy, Scott? This is a great one. It's certainly one I run into in the emergency department all the time. Um, the article talks about in the first trimester, it may increase the risk of uh, spontaneous abortion. And then in the third trimester, it may delay labor or prematurely close the ductus arteriosus. Uh, so those are obviously two very bad situations. And then, so, you know, perhaps there may be some use 
in the second trimester, but I think in general it probably should be avoided. One thing I did point out that was helpful for me, I think, is that NSAIDs are fine in lactation. There's no issues there. So a patient who's breastfeeding or whatever can, uh, can certainly take nonsteroidal safely. All right. Well, Scott, you've thoroughly scared me from prescribing NSAIDs to any of my patients ever again. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> As we talk about all these risks that exist. But no, I mean, I think it's important to look at the individual risks that are associated with, with each group. And like you talked about, really stratifying your risk for your patient. So is this patient high risk for these issues? And you got to think deeper than just kind of blindly prescribing NSAIDs. But sure. if, if you need to prescribe something for pain, the article does touch on the alternatives. And briefly, I'll just mention that they talk about uh, a acetaminophen or paracetamol, and that uh, on average, NSAIDs are superior in reducing pain. But we keep talking about this dose effect. Well, if you combine acetaminophen or paracetamol with an NSAID, you just use a lower dose NSAID, you may be able to get that same effect without all the side effects or adverse effects that come along with NSAIDs. And then uh, opioids are, you know, we use them often, but the general consensus, at least when you talk about chronic issues like osteoarthritis, is that these drugs should not be used as first line. Uh, you've got the mild things like constipation and drowsiness, but there's some significant issues. In elderly patients, we found that you, you can cause 27 fractures per 100 patient years, meaning you know, uh, 27 out of 100 patients are going to get a fracture in a year with an average age of about 78 if they're on opioids. So a lot of our patients with osteoarthritis are older patients. It's probably not a good idea to put them on opioids. But if you've got other conditions and it's going to be short-term, opioids are a good, a good alternative. That's awesome, Cole. It's definitely some great information on other options besides nonsteroidals and also things to combine with nonsteroidals, especially low-dose nonsteroidals, to get the same or better effect. So I certainly learned a lot from all the stuff we've been talking about. Just to throw out a couple of pearls that really stood out to me. First, the non-selective non-steroidals block the antiplatelet effect of aspirin. So if somebody's taken aspirin for cardioprotection and you put them on ibuprofen or naproxen or another non-selective non-steroidal, that aspirin protection is going to go away. So in those patients, we really should be using a low-dose COX-2 inhibitor. And to piggyback on that, I think... We should be considering using either a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker in addition to these drugs in people that are at higher risk for GI side effects or GI bleeds, upper GI um, bleeds, ulcer disease, or perforation. And probably the most important thing that came out of all this for me is I really need to use the lowest dose possible of these non-steroidals regardless of the patient population. How about you, Cole? What would you take away? Well, that's good stuff, Scott. Certainly some of the same stuff that you talked about. I, I will say that it seemed like as we were reading and going over this information that one thing that kept coming up was topical NSAIDs. And it just seemed like, wow, they're, they're effective. And, and wow, they're just as effective. And by golly, they've got lower uh, uh, adverse effects and side effects. And look how well they work here and look how well. And so it really kind of opened my eyes to this is a treatment option that I think I should be considering far more often than I do. Uh, so I'd like to look at that. And that was one big takeaway for me. Uh, the specific cases that we talked about where we're going back and forth of the high-risk groups uh, were all very important and, and valuable to me. It was great to review pregnancy and just talk about why it is that we are, are careful with using these medications in pregnancy, the first sure. trimester uh, spontaneous abortion, and then the third trimester uh, delayed labor and possible premature closure of the ductus. So I liked that part. And then in a sports medcast first, I'm actually going to piggyback on one of your pearls and say the low dose uh, take-home point. I mean, I, I think that 
across all these groups, all of these effects were dose dependent for the most part. And so we, I think that too often we're using the max dose or too often uh, patients are using that dose on their own. That's something that we can educate our patients about. And we can always be a little bit more conservative, use, use Tylenol in addition to the NSAID or whatever it might be, but being very careful about the dose that we use for pain control. That's awesome. Cool. Fantastic. I'm glad we actually agree on something. Good stuff. <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. <laughs> right. So, well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, please continue the feedback. Email us at thesportsmedcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at sportsmedcast. And look forward to talking to you more next month. Actually, next month we've got a very exciting speaker, so it uh, should be a great episode. Look forward to talking to you all then. Take care. <laughs>